This episode of See Here is brought to you by Punk Rock. Say no to the sport. Episode 43 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. Now, normally I'd be hosting my two other compadres in this music film podcast, and that would be Mr. Bernard Stickwell and Mr. Tim Merrill, but neither of them are available. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a conspiracy. They've probably gone off to start a punk band without me. They haven't invited me because they don't think my chops are good enough. But what have I arranged? I have gone and arranged for a member of the community and a, a fellow who's been on the show before. We spoke about a, a punk-related film about two years ago, and that's Mr. Hank Hellman. Welcome back, Hank. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here again. It's marvellous. I think you know, we, probably we might sort of start off like a side program. We go through every punk music film <laughs> known to man. This will be our specialty. I mean, we've actually covered a few other punk films on the show, but I think in future you're my punk specialist. So You got it. We've decided to go with this time a film from 2013 called We Are The Best. And this is far from an obscure film. You know, it wasn't a megaplex film either. So hopefully those of you out there listening might have seen this film out of Sweden. And we'll be back after listening to the trailer, which is all in Swedish. So if your Swedish is good, you're covered. If it's not, then just try to imagine what's going on. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and fill you in what our thoughts were. You're listening to See Here with me, Morris, and Hank over in Denmark. Det är 
Welcome back from break. You'll listen to the See Here podcast. In case I didn't make it clear at the start, this show is about discussion of music-related films. A niche, you might think, yes, but we've got 43 films in the can thus far, and hopefully many hundreds more. So a niche, but we intend to keep going forever, basically. So my huge thanks to uh, Hank Hellman for joining me for uh, this episode. And uh, as I said before the break, we're going to be discussing the film We Are The Best. So uh, just the basic IMDB details. The film is, as I said, We Are The Best, directed by Lucas Moodison, written by Lucas Moodison, based on a graphic novel written by his wife, Coco, starring Mira Burkhammer, Mira Grossen, and Liv Lemoyne. I hope I haven't gone and butchered those names. They are the main band in the film, which we never actually sort of get a name. They never actually name themselves, unless the name of the band is The Best. They're saying, we are the best. Anyway, so the uh, synopsis for the film, three girls in 1980s Stockholm decide to form a punk band despite not having any instruments and being told by everyone that punk is dead. There's a little bit more to it than that, but let's go through it. So, Hank, normally I'd be asking the guest on the other side of the Skype conversation when was the first time they saw it but i'm going to ask you something a little bit different taking the sex out of the equation so you know you're a boy and they're girls is this film about you in your teenage years Mm, well not really but there are some sort of universal aspects to it that that, uh, i was not a punk rock i wasn't even in a band so so in that sense it wasn't really but i grew up in you know in a sort of scandinavian welfare state in a town that wasn't uh, all that big and uh, had parents that were sometimes uh, were actually pretty pretty decent people but were also sometimes uh, embarrassing and you just wanted to get away from them and so so in that sense sort of there's a some very universal aspects i think to this film that that, that everyone can relate to and probably also why it's a good film but uh, other than that not so much i would have to say yeah look i'm pretty much with you i grew up once again not really listening to punk music i mean even to this day i have i guess more of a casual interest in certainly in, in old punk and probably a lot through the films that we've been watching but it was never really my big thing i guess the sense of rebellion that comes out in these girls is well it's teenage rebellion it's but it's, it's a little bit more realistic than some of the other films that we might have discussed or thought about on this show previously with the others uh we discussed hated ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains suburbia the blank generation and you and i discussed good vibrations a few years ago this film more than the others features punk i guess more of a catalyst to the plot it's not really about the goings-on of a punk band i mean it's sort of a growing up movie it's it's more about this is a moment in their lives it's instantaneous and punk is just what they're attracted to because it defines their otherness we get some scenes earlier on in the film that sort of show that they're different to their contemporaries and they feel like you mentioned embarrassed by their parents and so punk is just their way of identifying with something that's different. Yeah, yeah. It's like if this film had taken place maybe five or ten years before or after, it could have been something other than punk that was the catalyst. Although, mind you, I guess one of the things that the Barbie dolls, as I call them, in one of the early scenes of the film try to tell our two main characters, Bobo and Clara, is that punk is dead. Take it from me. My brother used to be a punk. But I think that in interviews that I've seen with uh, Lucas Moodison, he said that 
this film, or rather the original story that his wife Coco had written, was in some ways autobiographical, and she sort of identified as a punk at that time. And I'm guessing that it was at the, you know, the same time as this is set, or maybe even a little bit later. So punk is about rebelling against the common concept, I guess, is it not? So even if it's set in 1982, 1983, yeah, yeah. after the initial outburst of English and American punk, if it's supposedly about rebellion, then rebelling against the common concept. I like this. I'm going to wear that mohawk haircut. I'm going to listen to this music because you're listening to the Human League. Definitely, but at a later point, maybe it could have been a metal or hip-hop or right. something else where that also has a... But it's not really that important, I guess. I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about what I saw as a realistic approach to the filmmaking here. This could have easily been told a la The Wonder Years or Stand By Me many years after the fact. I remember when. Yeah. And it doesn't do that. That's really, in my opinion, to its credit. Absolutely. It doesn't try to romanticize it. It's not told from the parents' perspective. Oh, the silly duffers, this is what they did. And they grew up along the way. It's just about these two girls, which becomes three. And it's very much told from their perspective. But it's not about that moment where they get good at their instruments. Because they never do. They lose interest in stuff. It's all about the now. And that's, I guess, coming back to my original question to you, was this you? It was not even so much about the rebellion or whether you joined a band but like other kids did you take an interest in stuff and think that was the most important thing in the world for a time only to find out that you get an interest in something else a month later well sure one of the things i like about the film is that you know with a different approach it could sort of have been misery porn where these uh, kids had terrible parents and they were abused and, and they were outsiders for that reason and that's not the case i mean the parents are kind of a little bit absent in their life but you don't get ever get the impression that they're bad people or that they, these kids are being mistreated it's just that they have sort of reached that point where they're sort of the world of the kids and the world of the parents they sort of drift apart and they're not really that connected anymore and so they're just into their own thing and every little thing is of huge importance as it is in that age is music and this week we are you know they're beggars and they're going into mcdonald's to get them to give them free food and the next week it's something else and and i, I think that seemed very authentic to me and, and one minute they're in love with a boy and the next minute they don't care about all and then you know I think I like him again and all of that stuff. Very much. You can definitely relate to all of that. Yet there's something about the nature of the relationships between Clara and Bobo as 12-year-olds or 13-year-olds and their parents and you're sort of wondering who's the adult and who's the child. I mean, there's a lot of that behavior yeah, yeah. that the kids do that's very 12 or 13-year-old. But you look at Bobo's mother yes. who's had bad relationships with men and yet even though despite Bobo has a phone call with Clara and says, I'm so embarrassed by her. We just had this party and they're all behaving like idiots and yet when Bobo's mother splits up with her boyfriend, it's Bobo saying, would you like me to make you some hot chocolate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you have the other kid, I forgot her name for a second, whose uh, parents, Clara, of course, uh, whose whose father seems to be a nice guy, but he also just wants to play along with their band and walking around this stupid clarinet all the the time. (laughs) 
spring jättebra. Yeah, you have a gang. Can I join your gang? Can I play clarinet in your band? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but again, they're not bad people. You know, they're just not. It's, it's in sort of in an era where the sort of the sort of authority of the parents has sort of disappeared, and they're not really connected to their kids' lives in a way. And when there is a, a parent like the third girl, uh, Hedwig, who has sort of a, a Christian mother who tries to be a sort of authority figure, well, that doesn't really work out too well either. Well, I mean, it's interesting you sort of bring her up because I think in a way Hedwig's mother and maybe even Hedwig to a degree are the only adults in the film as yeah. it were. I mean, Hedwig, like the other two, is a 13-year-old and she's interested in the stuff that the girls are, but she's not as flighty and if they want to do something, okay, we'll do that. You don't want to do something else, okay, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah, and she's the thing. She's the sort of the girl that keeps the things, uh, the whole operation on track. And when there's an important time to make sure that people don't go their separate ways, she's the one sort of the glue that keeps it all together. One important scene was one that sort of showed exactly that they are teenagers whose minds can drift, and also that unlike in an American film, for example, where I'm passionate about making music, I'm going to do it. Damn the music was just a byproduct of their rebellion so they realized they don't have an electric guitar they say oh well you have to get yourself an electric guitar how are we going to do that oh well we'll just go in, out into the street and we'll beg for money then that'll help us get a guitar and they use a whole bunch of excuses oh my sister needs an operation i need an electric guitar i need to find my way home they work to varying degrees of success and it's like the 1980s version of a kickstarter if you will but the girls find that they don't get more than about ten dollars worth well they could have either sulk and give up they could gritted their teeth and said well we're going to try again damn it or they could use the money that they did to go out and buy a sickening amount of chocolate and ice cream <laughs> exactly that's great. That's also... Which is great. In a way, it's, it seems more realistic to me because these girls, yeah. they, they start this band for a lark and they're not passionate. It's, let's go out and buy ice cream. And it just spoke to me so much. It was funny as hell and yet it seemed realistic. Exactly. And it's, it's also that whole sequence when they're sort of begging for, for chains in, in the subway or wherever it is. It's also like them playing with sort of social conventions and challenging them and what can we get away with and how can we do that. And there's a lot about uh, they understand sort of this sort of very regular sort of Swedish welfare society where there's a lot of rules but they understand pretty early on also there's a great scene early on when they when they want to have a, a band practice and the rehearsal space is, is occupied but the guys who are in there playing this uh, great band called Iron Fist I love that by the way <laughs> They forgot to fill out a form with their name, and so the girls they just fill out. Uh, so they actually, they do have a name because, but I can't remember what it is. I think it's the prettiest girls in town or something because they they put in a name on that form at the beginning when they have to get the rehearsal space. And then there's these two uh, guys who are overseeing this youth center, or whatever it is. That they well rules are rules, and we fill out the form, so they have to give them the room, even though they know that uh, they don't have a band and that they know how they don't know how to play. And the others have been there a while, but you know, rules are rules, and these girls are smart enough to understand the rules and then you can manipulate them a little bit and then sort of all these uh, grown-ups well you know those are the rules so well you're right i thought it was pretty funny yeah, clara and bobo is very keen manipulators yeah. i love those two guys who run this youth center and you know for the kids <laughs> uh the, 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 my one of my favorite thing about the movie they're, they're great so we think we tore the team up in the end so uh 
Alltså, vi bara improviserar. Vi visar... Visa lite vad vi... Ett exempel, hur, ja, man ett kan exempel. Bygga, hur man kan bygga upp låten. Och... Alltid bra en extra stock någonstans om man tappar mitt i spelet. Vi kan göra extra hål i de här så om det skulle bli för långt ner. Kommer upp lite. Sitsen sitter rätt, liksom hajten står rätt och allt. Jag kommer köra rätt enkla akord som jag kommer lära ut sen. Det är... Här är E, eh, A, eh, G och D. Så. Oh, oh. så. Vi känner att det svänger lite. Ja. It would have been nice to have seen them a little bit more. I think there were some comedic elements that we could have had. Yeah, they're great. They're great. I think they're really fun. And also, again, not they're not bad guys or anything. They just kind of you laugh a little about them, but they're pretty decent guys who are spending you know the free time probably helping out these kids. But once again, that's what makes this film so realistic. There is truly no one bad. I mean, I guess, you know, you, the closest that you could say, you know, there, there are characters who do things that you don't like. You know, I mean, the, the two Barbie girls, they just don't understand Clara and Bobo, but it doesn't make them bad. They're just sort of following what everyone yeah. else does by doing choreography to humanly, don't you want me, baby? The band that they kick out, I mean, they call them all sorts of nasty names, but they're justifiably pissed off that Clara and Pobo have cheated them out of rehearsal time and rehearsal space. Oh, yeah. Out I of just, boredom more than anything. Right, right. I, I just love the fact, the word that I just keep coming up with is, this is realistic. There's no John Williams score over the top of this. There's no triumphant moment where we learn something about ourselves or the characters take over the world or they get better at their instruments. There are no sort of huge personal emotional issues that are resolved and then they're able to, you know, go on afterwards. There's none of that. I like that. There's a section of the film later on where the three girls go out to meet another band and there's only two members of this band. So three girls amongst two boys doesn't fit. And there's an incident of jealousy and stab behind one's back. And in an American film or in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, it could have quite easily turned to jealousy and I don't want to be your friend anymore. But 
being the frivolous characters that they are, they give up on, a, on an instrument by buying chocolate and, come on, you want to be my friend even though I cheated on you with your boyfriend? Oh, yeah, okay, let's be friends again. Yeah, it's one of those little dramas, those sort of small betrayals or whatever. They're so huge in your life when you're that age. There's everything, but then, you know, you forget about them, you know, maybe in an hour, maybe in a day or two. And it's also where the, the third girl, Hedwig, she shows that she's a bit more mature, that she knows this and she's able to, instead of they're having to, you know, maybe break up the band forever and, and ruin their friendship that she's able to sort of get them back on track immediately and just get it over with and you know and it can go on and I guess that's the other thing that I like about it we don't really get enough of Hedwig but I like that she's not presented in a fashion that could be too easy to ridicule. So she has these Christian beliefs. Her mother has yeah. these Christian beliefs. And in film in 2017, that could be a very easy target. But they don't make fun of that. You know, the, it's like the girls subscribe to their form of rebellion and... and, and Hedvig yeah. subscribes to Christianity and it's not a big deal is made of it. But I also like when they're sort of discussing it. She's the only one that she's a bit of a loner and she can play guitar. So that's why they want her in the band. She's really good and they don't know anything about music. But one of the things they have this discussion about but one of the, one of the girls want her in the band the other one doesn't because she's a Christian and then they have this discussion. But well, I mean, you know actually, this is sort of very sort of Swedishly politically correct at the time. Well, you know, we should use our sort of, uh, we should try to influence her to help you know she's uh, sort of a victim of this evil Christianity we should try to help her and then you know if she still wants to be a Christian well, we'll kick her out you got to love logic like that right <laughs> that's pretty great I just uh, it's a point you've already made it but I would like to, to reiterate it when uh, I love the situation where they spend all their hard-earned money on chocolate and there's a there's a few of these scenes that remind you that these are actually small children there's also uh, uh, Bobo she cuts her hand at one point and she thinks she's going to die and it's very sort of and she's she's just crying she just turns into in front of your eyes it's just a very sort of small girl and they help her out and it's very nice and this is, I think it's very important that are there, there are these couple of scenes just to remind you that these aren't in their late teens but these are actually young children I've not actually watched any of the other films of Lucas Moodyson although I'm going to make it a priority now I believe he's like made about four or five other films all highly revered Lilia Forever another film with the interesting title of Fucking Amal and they're yeah. all about teens. So I, I'd be fascinated to hear what he has to say. What is it that he's attracted to? Stories about kids growing up. Like, I'd love to know about his childhood or his teenage years. Was there anything exceptional about it? Or did he just think that they have far more honest and interesting stories to tell? Maybe. I've, I've watched a couple of his films. I watched the one uh, the one you mentioned, his uh, debut called Fucking Omol. Omol is another sort of wow. Swedish little town where a couple of girls uh, grew, grew up and fall in love and stuff like that. And so it, it, this reminds me a lot of uh, We Are The Best. And then in between, I've seen, I think I've seen Lilia Forever, and there's one called A Hole In My Heart, that are a lot more sort of angry and political and sort of actually sort of, I thought it was sort of almost like misery porn, where just everything oh. is shit and everything bad. Just decent movies, definitely worth a look. But it's like, uh, and then I haven't seen the other films that he's made. He's made a couple of uh, American films, I think. But but it's like with uh, We Are The Best, it's like he's he's going back to... You know, his first stuff, as far as I can tell, this has got a lot more heart to it. And I, I like that about it. I think the other ones were a bit too preachy for my taste. Many years ago, my wife went to a screening here of The Commitments, which was like the debut performance of it here in Melbourne. And Alan Parker was there to introduce it. He said, I wanted to finally make a film 
where people were not going to walk out wanting to slit their wrists because after <laughs> so much, as you say, misery porn, you know, films like Mississippi Burning and Pink Floyd The Wall and writing the script for Midnight Express and here he just came up with a fun film about a band. That's it. Make a film about a band. It's always going to be happy. Well, maybe not. Uh, but it looks like Lucas Moodison had taken the same philosophy that Alan Parker did when he made the commitments. Yeah, maybe. Let's talk about the song, because really the, the girls only come up with one song. It's the focus of the film. They never attempt to learn another one. I mean, they barely <laughs> learn how to play this one, but it's called Hate the Sport, and they adapt it very interestingly in the final scene of the film. <laughs> well, it's quite easily adaptable, so that's, <laughs> that's a good thing, I guess. <laughs> but yes, uh, Clara... Certainly, is reasonably articulate. I mean, would you say that they're typical early high school heart on the sleeve type lyrics, or you know, or do you say that there's something a little bit more poetic than that? Well, they pro- yeah. I mean, they're probably a little bit better than they would have been if you know a twelve-year-old girl had, had written them in most cases. But but they still, you know, they, they still get that. Uh, you still get the sense that this could be real, and certainly the, the feeling of. Uh, there was a lot of uh, there was always these kids who just hated sports yes. especially and there's always this uh, teacher who who <laughs> just with the you know sports was his whole life and he would just had to get everyone on, on board and it was never going to happen and that I think that's that's probably a pretty universal experience to going to high school anywhere and I think it definitely catches that yeah it's it's a pretty good song it's it's a bad song in a, in a good way <laughs> I mean, actually one thing I was sort of paying attention to I was sort of thinking oh the playing here is so bad surely this is going straight to film but even that was dubbed so it, like I was watching certain bits and we're hearing the crash symbol being played and Mira Burkhammer is playing on the hi-hat. So I think, oh my goodness, even in a film like this, I can't just roll and record. So, Yeah, so the, you don't know if they were the girls themselves, if they were actually too good or too bad. Oh, they had to get professional musicians in to play that band because maybe the girls were actually good enough to play well. So, no, that sounds too good. We need to get better musicians to play professionally bad or really bad musicians. No, sorry, I actually know how to play the drums. No, not good enough. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that's the kind of thing that the drummer notices. I didn't notice it at all. So they hate the sport, this, their frustration. And like what you were saying before about the adult characters, no one's actually bad. Even their sports teacher, he doesn't seem like a bad fellow. He's not the stereotype jock. He, he's given them an opportunity. Come on, let, just ta- have a bit of fun. Come on, come on and play basketball. And they're taking the piss out of him. So what can he do? Says, all right, jog around the basketball court. You've got to do something. But he's he's not a bad guy. Once again, comes in with the film's realism. Yeah, yeah, I think every school probably since the dawn of time, that whether they had sports, there have been some kids, you know, jogging around the playing field instead. Just another insight into their otherness. They consider themselves against the pretty girls. They consider themselves oh, yeah. against the jocks. But you know, we know, sort of like going through the 70s and into the early 80s, it was metal versus punk. So it's Iron Fist versus the prettiest girls in town. It's their competency versus the girls' incompetency. So there's there's a lot of otherness being brought out in, in this film. But yeah, yeah, but it's still a, a sort of 
sort of still in this sort of very low-key Swedish way where they're still, uh, you know, uh, playing in the same uh, youth club and they're still riding on the same bus to go to the concert, you know, all that. Right, right. Well, and that's that's the thing where we get to the end of the film and this is not really giving much away because the film is more about the friendship and things that happen along the way. This is not about a, a grand plot with conclusion that everyone learns from something. Ex- with the exception maybe of saying that in the final scene where the song Hate the Sport is shown to be quite adaptable, they're in this little sports rec centre. In, in any other film, that would be a third of the way into the film, working their way up to the big show that they're going to do at the end. <laughs> No, but their yeah, big yeah. show is to play in a sports center in a town, I don't know how far away from Stockholm, in front of maybe 20 people, insult their audience, have their audience call them names that I don't want to say on this family-friendly podcast. <laughs> they changed the name from Hate the Sport to Hate Vasteras, which is the name of the town that they're playing. But I just thought that was absolutely hysterical. But that's why oh, no, the friendship is cemented with Hedvig. I think up until then, they still... It's yeah. like the us versus her, but that's it. They're a crew after that. Yeah, but it's also they're all just sort of playing their roles as punks and metalheads and disco girls and whatever. You don't really get the impression that those, you know, guys who stand up and yell at them, they actually hate them. It's just like, you know, that's what they're supposed to do. Also, these girls, they're rebels, but it's not really sort of it's about the sort of the feeling of being rebel. There are being sort of rebels about all the things that you're supposed to be a rebel about. And you, there's this great montage it's at the end where they're sort of their anti-capitalism they're anti-church, they're anti-nuclear power and, you know, whatever. It's actually in conformance with the sort of the values of the society at the time. But it's just that, that, that that's what they sort of rebel about. But they're, they're, you know, they're not really trying to change anything. They're just young kids having fun being rebels. That's, right. uh, that's probably more, more realistic than it, if it would have been any sort of grand political statement. That would have been actually quite a big disappointment, yeah. which sort of goes in direct opposition to films that we covered on the show before like Suburbia and even in a way to Good Vibrations because oh yeah yeah exactly um, the main character there and we if, go back and listen to that show folks because Hank and I go for a long time on why that film is so fantastic but the character there he has the epiphany it is about the punk ethos he was like a traditional rock guy and he gets this great big epiphany about why punk is the future so what you're making a record and once again for these girls punk is just oh is that the way that we rebel okay we'll do that and if it had been i don't know prog rock well they would have found a way to badly play prog rock or if basketball had been the thing that society hated then they might have taken that up and sung a song (laughs) called uh hate the music hate the music or something (laughs) yeah that's also about context, obviously, because Good Vibrations is a, is a film that takes place in, in Belfast during right. the, the Troubles, where there is, you know, there's, there's a lot more significance where you're trying to navigate your way through this situation where there's a lot more there's a lot more at stake you in, that in this movie sort of you know fairly comfortable life in Sweden welfare society 80s with you know slightly absent parents or whatever I think it works perfectly. <laughs>
an interesting thing, like at the very beginning of the film, there's a song. Now I looked this up because I, I wasn't familiar, but it was a uh, Eba Gron. I think I've got that correct with a song called uh, Sweden, Sweden. And it was a song about feeling gratitude towards one elders and society at large, while slightly acknowledging that the singer still doesn't feel that everything is quite right. But yeah, we're grateful to our parents and we're grateful to our teachers. And isn't this wonderful? And isn't that wonderful? And I love that they use that song for the beginning of this film because it seems to me like Bobo and Clara, well, maybe not so much Clara, but Bobo knows that. Yeah, I know I've got this life, but something isn't quite right. It's subtle rather than uh, uh, fuck yeah. the man, fuck society. That'd be all too easy and obvious. I mean, in fact, even the girls later on, they go to visit those two boys in that other band. And their big song is, what was it called? Fuck Reagan, fuck Brezhnev. Brezhnev has been dead for months. What's this form of rebellion before they realise that those guys are not worth throwing their lot in? But the beginning of the film, it's this song, it's punk in music, and it's, it's punk in the idea that you question things. Yeah, society can be okay, but there's something that's not quite right and I can't put my finger on it. So I think that song is quite clever. Definitely. It's also like the comparison with Northern Ireland, where it was sort of... Uh, easier to understand what it was you were against is a bit more sort of ambiguous here because you know things aren't that bad but they're maybe not perfect so of course you're against uh, the system but the system is not so bad and it's uh, just a lot more sort of becomes personal and sort of about sort of your sort of personal malaise or loneliness or whatever it is which is kind of hard, hard to rebel against so what did you think about the three actresses so is you know, Mira Burkhammer who played Bobo Mira Grossen who played Clara and Liv Lemoyne who played as Hedvig. I think they're fantastic. I think they're really good. I think it's we really believe that there are sort of kids of this age going through this stuff, and I think that that's uh, of course if, if they hadn't been, the film wouldn't have worked at all. But I think they're I think they're really really good, and I love that it's you don't you don't get to see that many films about female friendship, about friendship between girls, especially young girls. And I think there are probably far too few of these films made. So I think that's that's uh, it's, it's really great. And, and if I had a, a daughter, I would show her this at some point. I don't. But you know. Look, I do. And I tried to get my daughter to watch this last week, but I think she was busy doing homework. So she didn't. No, maybe she's a little too old. Maybe. I don't know. But uh, the actors are really good. It almost seems like I imagine Lucas Moodison was giving them very little direction. This is how I'm seeing it because their acting was so naturalistic it wasn't put on 
at any stage, at least not the way how I saw it. They asked questions in an awkward way, and there were moments where, oh, does this quite work from an acting perspective? And I thought, you know, it doesn't matter. This is as natural as hell. And that, like yeah. I said, that moment where Hedvig's mother is telling them off, or the girls forcing Hedvig to cut her hair so they'll accept her as part of their gang. And you get this sheepish look out of Clara where she gets this passive-aggressive thing of, oh, yeah, we did the bad thing, but, you know, really, did we do the wrong thing? Really? She's dipping her toe in the water to see whether she, yeah, you know, how, much she can, how much she can get away with. And I just imagine Lucas Buddhism said, what would you do if this was really you? I'm just going to step back. It doesn't seem like it was direction heavy, and that seems like a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Especially, well, I mean, if you want to have realistic portrait of young girls or young kids, um, I suppose you have to do it like that. But it's uh, definitely you know, a high wire act. It could definitely go wrong, but it doesn't here. You wonder whether those girls had been to local acting classes, theatre groups or, or the like. I'd, I'd almost be hoping that this was the first thing that they'd ever done. I have no idea. Well, any of our uh, Swedish listeners or any listeners who are far more familiar with Swedish films than we are, please write in and uh, let us know whether any of those girls have actually done much else before We Are The Best. I'd be interested to know if they've done anything since making this film. I should have gone and looked, but I'm a little bit disorganized. <laughs> oh, dear. The, the trials and tribulations of being a podcaster. Summing up, what do you think was a key scene for you, uh, Hank? Well, actually, I think it gets off to a really good start early on when they have to get into the uh, uh, rehearsal room, rehearsal space, and how they sort of manipulate their way, and then they try to play music, and sort of you get those two great guys who are running the youth center are there, and, and I think that's sort of sets the tone for the whole film, and I think that that's a really good scene that draws you in. Actually, I was, uh, one other thing I forgot to mention is the handheld camera use. Now, in some films, you could sort of say, right, that's overdoing it. But I think what adds to the naturalistic feel of the film is it's that, for lack of a better term, the cinema verite. Uh, it almost looks documentary-like. And their moments of hardship or feeling dispirited, you almost feel like you're intruding in on their world. But that, to me, is what adds to the realism. And I think the use of the cut shots and the moving in and out, like as if it's being photographed on, on a little camera or on an iPhone, I think really works in this case. I agree completely. And after a while, I didn't notice the camera work at all, which is, right. you know, a sign that it was working. Never overplayed. And it's sweet, but in the best possible sense of the word. It's not sweet as in saccharin. It's just no. It's uh, it's sweet in the sense that also you see how the girls take care of each other and how they help her and you know right how their their friendship really matters. So that that's cool. Oh well, okay. Anyway, well, I think uh, was there anything else that you wanted to bring up that we haven't covered? <laughs> I just wanted. To, I'm looking through my notes here. Yeah, I actually make notes. Where uh, good move. Yes, yeah, because my memory is not that great, it turns out. If you just pick one scene to sort of illustrate the sort of the gap between the kids and their parents and how the sort of their worlds seem to become increasingly irrelevant to each other, there's a point, there's a Christmas party where there's uh, this older guy who gives uh, one of the girls a piece of cheese. That's a Christmas present. Yes. And think it's and think it's a great joke. She's just sitting there looking at it like, what the hell? So Boba looks at that. She doesn't have to say, you're a dickhead. You know that, right? 
but the way the shot is set up, the look on her face, it's not a spoiled look. It's not a, I was expecting something big and expensive and more child-friendly. It was, you really don't know anything, do you? Exactly. I thought there was, there was a lot of sort of great little moments like that, that sort of like the moment we talked about for, before where she cuts her hand that sort of really sort of illustrates a lot of the points of the movie without being too, you know, on the nose about it. I think I have to go back search out not just Lucas Moodison's earlier filmography, which I understand and respect is going to be considerably different to this, but I also want to find his wife's graphic novel, which the film was adapted from, and Lucas actually went and said that he took it apart and completely disrespected it so he could create something <laughs> different. I'd love to know how she approached the relationship between the kids, what was different, and if there was something that was more cinematic in the yeah. telling of the story here, I'd really love to know. I, I don't suspect that, that should be too hard to track down. All right, look, well, thank you so very much, Hank, because if I was just talking to a microphone, this would have been a very, very boring <laughs> podcast. I know that there are, well, some, I, there are some experts like Terry Frost who can every week, week in, week out, do the solo podcasting thing. I am not one of those people. I like to have someone to talk <laughs> with and really, really grateful. I'm sorry that it's been so long since we had you on the show, uh, but I really do want to get you back when we have the whole crew. So it's not just you and me, but it'll be a four-way conversation. Thanks for having me, and I hope I made things a little less boring. Oh, you made things very, very interesting. This has been a really wonderful episode. I hope that the listeners out there have enjoyed this. So it, as we record this, it is August 2017. Film for next month. Seeing as I'm the one resident C here crew member uh, that's recording this, I guess it'll be my pick, and the other two guys are just going to have to go along with it. Actually, we're going to have two episodes next month. One will uh-huh. sort of be a mini-episode. I found out about a film that was made in my hometown of Melbourne. It's a short film, only 20 minutes, but I was so excited about this and want to talk about this. I'll be speaking with the director of this film. Going back a little bit for those of you outside of Melbourne, or at least outside of Australia, there's an incredible singer-songwriter. He hasn't sort of done anything in a songwriting vein for quite a while, but he still performs a lot of great blues stuff and his name is Chris Wilson. I did an interview with him on uh, a recent episode of Love That Album podcast, but I found out that there's a Melbourne filmmaker called Chris Franklin, and he makes short films about local musicians, which I found that very, very exciting, and he's just kind of made a short film called Chris Wilson's Live at the Continental. Now, if you come from Melbourne, you'd know that Chris Wilson had made an album with uh, his guitar player, Shane O'Mara, and a pianist, Jack Saralat, called Live at the Continental, the Continental Cafe, which was around in uh, Paran in, in Melbourne back in the uh, mid-90s, sadly no longer with us, unfortunately. But they decided to make this short film just to reminisce about the recording of that album and about what it was like for Chris Wilson and Shane O'Mara to work together. And they cover a whole lot more. They cover considerably quite a fair bit about their musical upbringing and their relationship within a 20-minute film. I watched this film. I was knocked out by it. It's going to be shown uh, late September at the Nova Cinema in Carlton as a supporting short for all the screenings of a new documentary about Brisbane band The Go-Betweens. I'm really, really looking forward to seeing that film, but... Now that this is a support, it's an essential double bill. But I did get access to see the film. 
made by Chris Franklin. So I'm going to be interviewing him and hopefully my uh, compadres Tim and Bernie will be available to join me. So we'll probably spend 60 minutes discussing a 20-minute thought, but that's okay. So that'll be one of our episodes for next month. And the more conventional episode where we talk about a film, once again, we'll be doing an Australian film. This is from 1982 or 1983, made by the great director Gillian Armstrong, or was it Gillian? I never know. And the film is called Starstruck. Now, this is a list of shame for me. I know that there are people who are on the Love That Album group and maybe some Australians in the See Here group who are listening to this and thinking, you're shitting me. You haven't seen this essential film from our cinema history. And yes, it is a list of shame. But that is why I decided it's a music-related film. It's uh, cited as a classic Australian film. Well, I had to do my civic filmic and Australian duty by bringing this film into the discussion. So next uh, month's two films will be Chris Olsen's Live at the Continental on one episode and Starstruck as the main episode for the month. So hope you can join us. Hope you find that interesting. And uh, even if you um, haven't seen either of these films, please enjoy it. Uh, Please join us. We'll have some interesting discussions. So a little bit of housekeeping. If you want to write to us, you can send an email at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here. That's S-W-H-E-A-R. You can download us from seehere.podbean.com or search for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever they call it nowadays or just use your podcast app of choice. I think that's covered it all. Once again, thank you so much, Hank for uh, being such a good sport and joining us for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. It was great. Thank you. Had a great time. Okay. And we'll see you next month. Please let people out there know that the show exists. Anyway, we'll see you in September of 2017. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 